We've been studying the perseverance of the saints, and the question that we've been seeking to answer is, can a believer lose their salvation? This is where we have come so far. These are our main points. We have spent a couple of weeks on salvation is conditional, and we've spent a couple of weeks on salvation is secure, where we are still at. Now, under this last point, salvation is secure, here are the points that we've covered. We've looked at basically a Trinitarian uh, approach in Scripture to the security of the believer. So we see that we are protected by the power of God. We see that uh, we see the work of Christ in His intercession for us, and we see the Spirit of God as He seals us belonging to God. Um, this last point is where we started, where we left off last time, or where we want to start today. Our, our point is that having been saved entails the creation of a new nature within us. There is something fundamentally different from before our salvation to the act of salvation and what we are like after salvation. So at salvation, the Spirit of God comes and quickens us or makes us alive in Him spiritually. We come to life spiritually and we now have a nature that is able to fellowship with God, something that we did not possess before. And so this is pretty significant and I think has a, a, a large bearing on this question as to whether or not we can lose our salvation. So the verse that we ended last week with is this, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So this speaks to the hope that we have in coming to Christ because, as you know, sin wrecks people's lives. And so we turn, as Christians, when sharing the gospel with others, we turn to this verse, and it gives hope that no matter how badly a person has messed up their life in the past, that is a reflection of the old nature. And when we come to Christ, He makes all things new. He can give us truly a new start, a fresh start. So we experience this coming to Christ and the creation of this new man within us. And we see in the New Testament how the New Testament encourages us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Because what happens now is that as Christians, we have the old flesh still. For God did not just kind of wipe it away. It's still present. But he is also with that old man given us the new man in Christ Jesus, which uh, is... Uh, that part of us that has fellowship with the Spirit of God who leads and directs us and guides us and speaks to us and so on and so forth. So we have these two natures that are vying against each other. As a matter of fact, there are some verses that talk about the old man and the new man or the old nature or the flesh and the, the spiritual man or yielding to the Spirit as kind of a battle or a war that takes place within us. So the Christian is at war with uh, you know, between the old man and the new man. And so this uh, really has a bearing on it. But, but here's the point that we made last week, and it's something for us to keep in mind tonight. And it is this, that the new man, the new creation in Christ, is not pulled to sinful things. It always desires what is right, and it always desires God. Regardless of what is going on, the new nature is that which belongs to God and which pursues Him and seeks Him. The pull towards sin and the, the desires for uh, fleshly things, that is a, a, 
a component of the old man, the old nature, the fleshly nature. That is the part that draws us aside. But the new man always seeks after God. And nothing happens to that new man. It is always present and it is always seeking after God. In, and we're talking about a truly new, a, truly, a true believer. That's what we're talking about. If you have truly been saved, that is what uh, the situation is. Now, I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. So let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll uh, put our points up here. We're on this last one, created with a new nature. Ephesians chapter 2 has some important verses, some of which I have uh, expressed already. So it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now those three verses there express the fact that our old man walked according to the course of this world, and it followed after the lusts of the flesh and of the mind, and the result was that uh, those people like that, without salvation, are the children of wrath by nature. And so we know this from other passages, particularly in Roman, Romans, where it says the wages of sin is death. So this is, this is no different than that. But notice how it started. You he made alive who were once like this. So talking about the believer or, the referring, or referring to the believer, we were dead, but now we are alive. We have come alive. So let's keep on going. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, I'm not going to go through everything in this passage, but there are many things that are important here. First of all, it talks about him making us alive, and all of the ways that it describes it, it describes it as having currently taken place as opposed to something that's going to happen in the future. And that is, that is uh, further substantiated by the end there where it says we are his workmanship. So it refers to this, uh, the fact that we have been created in him. It is a work of his. We are the, you know, his cra the, the craft of his craftsmanship. And he has created us in Christ Jesus. And, he has, and to just kind of emphasize the fact that this is something that is applicable to us right now. It says, we, have been, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. And those good works are things that, the, the works that we're supposed to do right now as a result of all of this work that God has done in us. He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, verse 11 says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, 
who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So, without Christ, there is no hope. And this is important too, because with Christ, we now have what? We have the hope of eternal life. And so that is significant. It is settled, it is established. The fact that we have been created in Christ and we belong to Christ, we are no longer far off, but we are near by the blood and we have the hope that the unbeliever does not have. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is, in, that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far, afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father." So this last phrase is particularly important here for our our purposes that now having been created by Christ into this new life, we have, by the Spirit, we have access to the Father. That's now. This is us now. And then finally, starting in verse 19, it says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, it says, therefore, you are no longer strangers. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. All right, so uh, we're no longer strangers and foreigners. We are now fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God. So you remember last time we were talking about how God not only saves us from the burning house, He invites us into His house and adopts us into His family. So this is the transition or the change that takes place in the unbeliever's life. He is made new. Christ delivers him from the wrath to come. We are adopted as his children into his household. And so that's the whole process of, of salvation. And uh, given all of this, the, the attempt to say that we can lose our salvation, really, if that's true, has to undo all of these things that we have been talking about. And it just does not seem, now I'm just approaching it from a logical uh, perspective, it doesn't seem... Uh, plausible that I might be adopted into his family and then kicked out of the family because I commit a sin and then adopted back into the family and then kicked out of the family. Uh, Those kinds of things just don't seem uh, applicable. The fact that I might have a new nature and then then that new nature dies because of my sin and then I get a new nature again have you know when I come back and ask him to to forgive me and then I sin and I'm backslide away from him and I lose that new nature, it dies somehow, that 
neither does that seem plausible. So, um, for, this, for these reasons, then, it just, uh, I, I personally am on the side that we have in God a new nature. We have our salvation. He has given it to us. It has true hope. It has true fellowship with Him, and it's something that we can bank on. Let me, let's read some more verses, and th- these are going to be similar to the things that I've said. Does anybody have any questions so far or comments? All right, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has born, been born of God. Now, I, I think that this is referring to the new nature. And of course, you know, when we talk about the new nature, we're talking about the nature of God that is free from the uh, impulses of sin and so forth and, uh, and so on. So we have this new nature, and if we have been born of God, then there is going to be this truth that there is, uh, in that new nature, there is not going to be sin. But it is also an encouragement and exhortation to us that just because we're saved, we cannot live any way that we want. We have been created in Christ Jesus for, do you remember what that verse said? For what? For good works. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so he has made us in such a way so that we do these good works. They are the result or the fruit of our salvation. So we cannot say that, uh, and, I, and I cannot affirm somebody who claims to be a Christian but has no desire for the things of God. That, that just does not fit to me. Because if you have a new nature, that new nature will pursue the things of God. And so somebody who is truly saved is going to reflect the pursuit of God in some way in their life. Now, we know people can say anything that they want. They can say they, can believe, they, say they believe in God and you know, they love God and um, however they want to put it. But there has to be fruit, some fruit, something in their life that reflects the truth of their belief in God, their faith in God. If it is not there, then I seriously have to question whether or not true salvation has come into the life of the person. Matthew chapter 7, I want to look at uh, some verses there, so you can turn with me in your Bibles. It's Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 23. And in this passage, we have reference to the the good tree and the bad tree. And I think this is applicable as well. So in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Now, now there's the statement right there. You will know them by their fruits. And, and this is the one that has a bearing on us. This is, of course, we don't know what's going on in anybody's heart. Only God knows what's going on in the heart. But that does not mean that we are completely without the ability to look and to discern something. We can't say definitively because only God can look into the heart. But here it says, you will know them by their fruits. So there is a measure in which we can look and discern and see if someone who claims to be Christ belongs to Christ. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good, tree bears good, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, 
nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And I believe that is a reference to the eternal destruction that an unbeliever faces. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, that's a pretty sobering passage right there. Um, But it drives home the point that the good tree will will bear good fruit, and you will know them by their fruits. Okay? So, if you have been truly saved, there will be heading towards God. There will be the desire for the things of God. There will be a hatred for the things of this world, and there will be good fruit in their life. Now, let me just say one one more thing. A lot of Christians will struggle. Do I belong to God, or do I not belong to God, or I've committed this sin, and, and I've done this sin again, and he's forgiven me so many times, and how will he forgive me again? And, you know, you go through all of these things in your mind and in your heart, And uh, you are broken up by it and concerned by it and you're feeling the guilt and and all of those things. And and honestly, I think if those things are all there, then that's a good sign that you really care about God and your relationship with Him. I know it's hard. I mean, just because we're Christians and we're supposed to bear good fruit, that doesn't mean that we're perfect and that we don't sin anymore. I mean, we all know that this is a daily struggle for us. But for those of us who care that we're sinning and that we strive not to sin and it bothers us when we do and we're happy when we don't, if those things are going on, I think that that is a healthy reflection of a transformed life. On the other hand, it is the one who just does not care what their life is like or does not think about God or does not consider you know, their li- in their lives that they need to repent or ask for forgiveness or none of these things cross their mind. They're not bothered by their sins. They have a hardened heart, maybe, if you will, as, you know, especially as time goes on. The one who does not care uh, about the things of God, that's the person that there is a concern for as to their salvation, regardless of whether they claim it or not. If they don't exhibit a desire for God, and a brokenness over their sins, and the need for, for confession and for, for forgiveness, then that's the person that um, I have to wonder if there's any salvation, or if salvation has truly come to that person's life. All right, another verse, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of, the, of Christ depart from iniquity. So we really have kind of um, the, the paradox here reflected in this verse. And you remember our paradox is how does, how does my need to continue to live for God come together with God's work in my life? How, how does that happen? And if you remember our little image is that God is sovereign and His will overshadows everything. He is able to do anything He wants, including allowing us to have freedom of will and choice. Real freedom and real choice. But that is kind of uh, 
underneath or falls under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. It's real and true and it is present and it reflects our need to, to go forward. Um, when we talk about, when people talk about losing their salvation, I, I think so often they are putting a whole lot of emphasis about how a person is choosing to live their lives and the decisions for sinfulness, sinfulness or non-sinfulness and so on. But the power of God and the presence of God or the work of God is kind of left out of the picture as to whether or not somebody can lose their salvation. So here it is. It says, first of all, the Lord knows who are those who are His. He knows those who belong to Him. He knows us. And then there's the second part. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's, that's our role in this. We have to strive. We have to continue to fight against sin and to strive to live for God. That's, that's a true and present uh, reality for us. Okay? Um, let's go to one more verse here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, here is a benefit that comes along with our salvation. There is a certain uh, uh, security or faith or hope. There is a rest that we can have in our salvation. The first epistle of John, as hard as it is, and as, you know, just hard-hitting, it is hard-hitting as far as now, if you believe in Christ, you've got to live for him. It, there, he, he just doesn't pull any punches. And yet, at the end of the epistle, it says this, I've written this so that you who believe in him, you may know you have eternal life. So there's a certain knowledge that we can come, a certain security that we can have concerning our eternal life. Now, this is, this is no surprise. We can turn to any passage that gives us the hope of eternal life. And let's take John 3.16, for example. So he, it says there, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will have what? Will have eternal life. So that means if I come to him and I believe, then I will have eternal life. Now, you can't put that promise out there for someone who believes if there's the possibility that they will stop believing and not have eternal life. It just kind of nullifies the impact of that verse and all verses like it that present a hope for us. Just like the one in 1 John chapter 5, we just hear, just, just like this one. So if there is the hope that is put before us, if you believe you will have eternal life, there is a, from here, my belief to there, the eternal life. That, that's what hope is, after all. And our faith is what carries us all the way through there. There, there has to be the possibility of being able to rest in God through my faith that will carry me there without the fear that I might fall away halfway down the road. So I, I just think it's really important for us to understand this. Um, now I have to just kind of end this by saying that um, just because just because a person is saved, and, I, and just because I believe in the security of the believer, I do not believe that a person can live, a Christian, can live any way they want. You can, just because you're saved, you believe in eternal security, 
doesn't mean that you can uh, live any way you want. So somebody says, well, you know, I asked Christ five and a half years ago, and he'll forgive me if I do this sin. I'm okay. You know, he'll forgive me. I'm covered. Uh, That kind of attitude, I think, is bringing us close to the brink there of reflecting, you know, maybe there's no true salvation present. You know, because the the person who believes in Christ is not going to say, well, I can do anything I want now because the blood of Christ just forgives me and, you know, I'm going to be okay no matter what. The true Christian is going to say, I'm going to stay away from every sin because I know it displeases God whom I love with all of my heart and I do not want to disappoint him. So, uh, so I, I, don't, I don't think that. And so the, the kind of the linchpin there is, uh, is a person really saved or not? And if we look at the parable of the sower and the seed from Luke, this goes back some weeks ago when, we, when I talked about it during Sunday morning. And, uh, it talks about the seed falling on the hard heart and the seed falling on the thorny ground and the seed falling on the rock, rocky ground. And in the Gospel of Luke, when it presents the parable of the sower and the seed, it is only that last, it is only the seed that falls on the good ground that produces salvation. And it mentions that in the explanation of the parable. And so what that means is that there is a certain, um, you know, someone can receive the word with joy and fall away because of the, the troubles of life. They can receive it with joy and fall away because of the, um, the distraction of the worldly things. And it's only those who put all of those things aside that truly bring fruit unto salvation. Okay. So that's, that's what I have here for the perseverance of the saints. And if someone were to ask you, can a believer lose their salvation? Well, the answer would be... No. <laughs> well, you got to say a little more than that. <laughs> so that's part of it. No. Help me out here now. No, you can't lose your salvation, but... You have to have you have to have been a Christian in the first place. You have to be a true believer, okay? So there's really a much heavier Yeah. 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 That's right. Um, as I, you're hitting on an important point. So what happened throughout the church history? They they've kind of they've kind of identified uh, the levels of faith, if you will. So there there's there are kind of three things. You have knowledge, which is necessary for for faith. You have assent which is necessary for faith, and you have um, uh, the, the commitment to it. The, the knowledge, the, acknowledge, the acknowledgement or the affirmation, and then the commitment to it. So you have knowledge is necessary. You have to hear the gospel in, in order to be saved. Okay? So you have to have the facts, the proposition of truths, if you will. Then you have to acknowledge that they are true. So... I know the facts, 
Jesus died on the cross and rose again for the sins of the world. Uh, many unbelievers know the facts, but that doesn't mean that they have true faith. You have to acknowledge them that they're true. But, uh, but even there, it's not enough. So then they have this third one. They've, there's the, the commitment or the casting of yourself upon the truth. So I hear the, I hear the information. I believe that the information is true, and I cast my life upon it as truth. So let's contrast that with the devils. So James, James says that the devils believe and tremble. Now, just consider that for a moment. The devils have all of the knowledge of God. The, the demons, they have all of the knowledge of God. There, there's no question whether God exists for them. Um, so not only do they have the knowledge, but they have the they have like f- they have firsthand experience. God is really alive. There's there's no devil who denies that. They know he's alive because they have firsthand experience with him. So they have the knowledge and they have they acknowledge it. It's true, but they have not cast themselves upon it. As a matter of fact, they have cast themselves away from it as its enemy. And so I, I think that that's, uh, I think you're right, Tyson. There's a, there's a heavy weight. When we say that we believe in Christ for eternal life, we're talking about giving our lives up for him, just like Jesus said. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, we repent of our sins and we give up our lives and all of the things in this world. You know, he who loves mother and brother and lands and is not worthy to me more than me is not worthy to be my disciple kind of thing so it, it's the giving up of i acknowledge it's true i acknowledge it's a necessity i i confess my sins and i cast my life upon it rejecting everything else then you have the true transformation of faith yeah that was a good question all right yeah go ahead Okay, go. Oh. I I agree. <laughs> this is pretty tough here. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't think you have to have such an extreme example. I, I believe many people who attend church fall into this category as well. So, in other words, they come to church, and it's like, but Lord, I went to church every Sunday. Well, we all know that going to church it does not save anyone. But Lord, I served, I served food to the poor every week at the Martinsburg Rescue Mission, or whatever, you know, None of those things save you. But Lord, my dad was a pastor. That doesn't save anybody. You have to have a personal relationship uh, with Jesus. So here it says, the ones who do. Now, it's kind of, it's kind of, this is a tough passage because he says, the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. But they went and these people were prophesying and casting out demons and doing miracles. You'd 
you'd assume that those were doing the will of the Father. But um, maybe these three examples are kind of extreme on purpose. And he's talking about, you have to live for me, you know, day by day. Maybe. But, but this is a challenging passage for sure. And a scary one, like, well, I agree with you. All right, Ron, Tyson, did you have anything else? And then we'll get Ron. Yeah, that's in First John, towards the end. But I do think he is talking about... I, I, well, that's right. It could be that. I, yeah. It, it, when he says, it, he who does the will of my Father, it could, we could refer to the will of the Father is that you believe on my Son. And that could be here. Yes, I would agree with that. Ron? Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. Yeah. We see an attempt at that by some people in the Book of Acts. Um, we we see in uh, the Book of Revelation. Well, in the Book of Revelation, they're doing the miracles and the casting. Out, well, they're not casting out demons. They're just doing all of these miracles. The Antichrist but they're not doing it in the name of the Lord. So maybe that's a little bit different. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I, that's right. I, I, I mean, yeah, he does, he, he, uh, he starts out, beware of false prophets. I mean, that's how the section is starting out. So a false prophet is someone who comes in with sheep's clothing, but they're wolves inside. So it reflects that in their heart. They're saying, Lord, Lord, with their mouth, and they're acting, you know, maybe doing some of these things on the outward appearance, but in their heart, they're, they're wolves. They don't belong to him at all. Yeah. Tina? That's right, it could be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're not saved by our works. And I, and I think that that is a distinguishing factor here. We're saved by a personal relationship with Jesus. So we're not saved by coming to church, or we're not saved by being on any committees, and we're not saved by any of the things that we might do. We're saved by a personal relationship with Christ. Yeah, good. Anybody else? Ernie? Yeah. Yeah, have we not prophesied in your name? And have we, so, so yes, I mean, and I think that that's kind of what Tina was saying there, that there's a reliance upon, we've done these things and we used your name, but there, there's really no true salvation from which the good works spring. Yeah. All right, anybody else? Okay, so we're done with this, and of course we could always continue to have a conversation about it any time. But um, thanks for your attention, and let's pray as we wrap it up tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, thank you for your word, and some of these things are difficult to understand. We just give you all the praise and the glory, and 
Help us in our heart to desire you, to love you with all that we are, to live for you, to bear good fruit in this world, to speak the truth, and to turn people towards you. We lift you up and exalt you and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good night.